Chapter Twenty Eight of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The new heir counts his chickens. The squire was almost lost in joy when he received his son's letter, telling him that Ralph the heir had consented to sell everything. The one great wish of his life was to be accomplished at last. The property was to be his own, so that he might do what he liked with it, so that he might leave it entire to his own son, so that for the remainder of his life he might enjoy it in that community with his son, which had always appeared to him to be the very summit of human bliss. From the sweet things which he had seen he had been hitherto cut off by the record of his own fault and had spent the greater part of his life in the endurance of a bitter punishment. He had been torn to pieces, too, in contemplating the modes of escape from the position in which his father's very natural will had placed him. He might, of course, have married, and at least have expected and have hoped for children, but in that there would have been misery. His son was the one human being that was dear to him above all others, and by such a marriage he would have ruined his son. Early in life, comparatively early, he had made up his mind that he would not do that, that he would save his money and make a property for the boy he loved. But then it had come home to him as a fact that he could be happy in preparing no other home for his son than this old family house of his, with all its acres, woods, and homesteads, the acres, woods, and homesteads gave to him no delight, feeling as he did every hour of his life that they were not his own for purposes of a real usufruct. Then, by degrees, he had heard of his nephew's follies, and the idea had come upon him that he might buy his nephew out. Ralph, his own Ralph, had told him that the idea was cruel, but he could not see the cruelty. What a bad man loses, a good man will get, he said, and surely it must be better for all those who are to live by the property that a good man should be the master of it. He would not interfere, nor would he have any power of interfering, till others would interfere were he to keep aloof. The doings would be the doings of that spendthrift heir, and none of his. When Ralph would tell him that he was cruel, he would turn away in wrath, but hiding his wrath because he loved his son. But now everything was set right, and his son had had the doing of it. He was nearly mad with joy throughout that day, as he thought of the great thing which he had accomplished. He was alone in the house, for his son was still in London, and during the last few months guests had been unfrequent at the Priory but he did not wish to have anybody with him now. He went out roaming through the park, and realizing to himself the fact that now at length the very trees were his own. He gazed at one farmhouse after another, not seeking the tenants, hardly speaking to them if he met them, but with his brain full of plans of what should be done. He saw Gregory for a moment, but only nodded at him, smiling, and passed on. He was not in a humor just at present to tell his happiness to anyone. 
He walked all round Darvell's premises, the desolate half-ruined house of Brumby's, telling himself that very shortly it should be desolate and half-ruined no longer. Then he crossed into the lane and stood with his eyes fixed upon Brownrigg's, Walker's farm, the pearl of all the farms in those parts, the land with which he thought he could have parted so easily when the question before him was that of becoming in truth the owner of any portion of the estate. But now every acre was ten times dearer to him than it had been then. He would never part with Brownrigg's. He would even save Ingram's farm in twining if it might possibly be saved. He had not known before how dear to him could be every bank, every tree, every sod. Yes, now in very truth he was lord and master of the property, which had belonged to his father and his father's fathers before him. He would borrow money and save it during his lifetime. He would do anything rather than part with an acre of it, now that the acres were his own, to leave behind him to his son. On the following day Ralph arrived. We must no longer call him Ralph, who was not the heir. He would be heir to everything from the day that the contract was completed. The squire, though he longed to see the young man as he had never longed before, would not go to the station to meet the welcome one. His irrepressible joy was too great to be exhibited before strangers. He remained at home in his own room, desiring that Mr. Ralph might come to him there. He would not even show himself in the hall. And yet, when Ralph entered the room, he was very calm. There was a bright light in his eyes, but at first he spoke hardly a word. So, you've managed that little job, he said as he took his son's hand. I managed nothing, sir, said Ralph, smiling. Didn't you? I thought you had managed a good deal. Is it done, anyway? Yes, sir, it's done. At least I suppose so. Ralph, after sending his telegram, had, of course, written to his father, giving him full particulars of the manner in which the arrangement had been made. You don't mean that there is any doubt, said the squire, with almost an anxious tone. Not at all, as far as I know. The lawyer seemed to think that it is all right. Ralph is quite in earnest. He must be in earnest, said the squire. He has behaved uncommon well, said the namesake, so well that I think you owe him much. We were quite mistaken in supposing that he wanted to drive a sharp bargain. He himself had never so supposed, but he found this to be the best way of speaking of that matter to his father. I will forgive him everything now, said the squire, and will do anything that I can to help him. Ralph said many things in praise of his namesake. He still almost regretted what had been done. At any rate, he could see the pity of it. It was that other Ralph who should have been looked to as the future proprietor of Newton Priory, and not he, who was hardly entitled to call himself a Newton. It would have been more consistent with the English order of things that it should be so. And then there was so much to say in favor of this young man who had lost it all, and so little to say against him. And it almost seemed to him, for whose sake the purchase was being made, that advantage, an unscrupulous if not an unfair advantage, 
was being taken of the purchaser. He could not say all this to his father, but he spoke of Ralph in such a way as to make his father understand what he thought. "'He is such a pleasant fellow,' said Ralph, who was now the heir. "'Let us have him down here as soon as the thing is settled.' "'Ah, I don't think he'll come now. Of course he's wretched enough about it. It is not wonderful that he should have hesitated at parting with it.' "'Perhaps not,' said the squire, who was willing to forgive past sins. "'But, of course, there was no help for it.' "'That was what he didn't feel so sure about when he declined your first offer. "'It was not that he objected to the price. "'As to the price, he says that, of course, he can say nothing about it. "'When I told him that you were willing to raise your offer, "'he declared that he would take nothing in that fashion.' If those who understood the matter said that more was coming to him, he supposed that he would get it. According to my ideas, he behaved very well, sir. In this there was something that almost amounted to an accusation against the squire, at least so the squire felt it, and the feeling for the moment robbed him of something of his triumph. According to his own views, there was no need for pity, it was plain that to his son the whole affair was pitiful, but he could not scold his son, at any rate not now. "'I feel this, Ralph,' he said, "'that from this moment everybody connected with the property, every tenant on it and every laborer, will be better off than they were a month ago. I may have been to blame, I say nothing about that, but I do say that in all cases it is well that a property should go to the natural heir of the life-tenant. Of course it has been my fault, he added after a pause, but I do feel now that I have in a great measure remedied the evil which I did. The tone now had become too serious to admit of further argument. Ralph, feeling that this was so, pressed his father's hand and then left him. "'Gregory is coming across to dinner,' said the squire, as Ralph was closing the door behind him. At that time Gregory had received no intimation of what had been done in London, his brother's note not reaching him till the following morning. Ralph met him before the squire came down, and the news was soon told. "'It is all settled,' said Ralph, with a sigh. "'Well, your brother has agreed to sell.' No, I have almost more pain than pleasure in it myself, because I know it will make you unhappy. He was so confident when he wrote to me. Yes, but he explained all that. He had hoped then that he could have saved it. But the manner of saving it would have been worse than the loss. He will tell you everything, no doubt. No man could have behaved better. As it happened, there was still some little space of time before the squire joined them, a period perhaps of five minutes. But the parson spoke hardly a word. The news which he now heard confounded him. He had been quite sure that his brother had been in earnest, and that his uncle would fail. And then, though he loved the one Ralph nearly as well as he did the other, though he must have known that Ralph the base-born was in all respects a better man than his own brother, more of a man than the legitimate heir, still to his feelings that legitimacy was everything. 
He, too, was a Newton of Newton, but it may be truly said of him that there was nothing selfish in his feelings. To be the younger brother of Newton of Newton, and parson of the parish which bore the same name as themselves, was sufficient for his ambition. But things would be terribly astray now that the right heir was extruded. Ralph, this Ralph whom he loved so well, could not be the right Newton to own the property. The world would not so regard him, the tenants would not so think of him, the county would not so repute him. To the thinking of Parson Gregory a great misfortune had been consummated. As soon as he had realized it he was silent and could speak no more. Nor did Ralph say a word. Not to triumph in what had been done on his behalf, or at least not to seem to triumph, that was the lesson which he had taught himself. He fully sympathized with Gregory, and therefore he stood silent and sad by his side. That there must have been some triumph in his heart it is impossible not to imagine. It could not be but that he should be alive to the glory of being the undoubted heir to Newton Priory, and he understood well that his birth would interfere but little now with his position. Should he choose to marry, as he would choose, it would of course be necessary that he should explain his birth. But it was not likely, he thought, that he should seek a wife among those who would reject him with all his other advantages, because he had no just title to his father's name. That he should take joy in what had been done on his behalf was only natural. But as he stood with Gregory, waiting for his father to come to them, he showed no sign of joy. At last the squire came. There certainly was triumph in his eye, but he did not speak triumphantly. It was impossible that some word should not be spoken between them as to the disposition of the property. I suppose Ralph has told you, he said, what he has done up in London? Yes, he has told me, said Gregory. I hope there will now be an end of all family ill-feeling among us, said the uncle. Your brother shall be as welcome at the old place as I trust you have always found yourself. If he likes to bring his horses here, we shall be delighted. The parson muttered something as to the kindness with which he had ever been treated, but what he said was said with an ill grace. He was almost heartbroken, and thoroughly wished himself back in his own solitude. The squire saw it all and did not press him to talk, said not a word more of his purchase, and tried to create some little interest about parish matters, asked after the new building in the chancel, and was gracious about this old man and that young woman. But Gregory could not recover himself, could not recall his old interests, or so far act a part as to make it seem that he was not thinking of the misfortune which had fallen upon the family. In every look of his eyes and every tone of his voice he was telling the son that he was a bastard, and the father that he was destroying the inheritance of the family. But yet they bore with him and endeavored to win him back to pleasantness. Soon after the cloth was taken away he took his leave. He had work to do at home, he said, and must go. The uncle went out with him into the hall, leaving Ralph alone in the parlor. 
"'It will be for the best in the long run,' said the squire, with his hand on his nephew's shoulder. "'Perhaps it may, sir. I am not pretending to say. Good night.' As he walked home across the park, through the old trees which he had known since he was an infant, he told himself that it could not be for the best that the property should be sent adrift out of the proper line. The only thing to be desired now was that neither he nor his brother should have a child, and that there should no longer be a proper line. The squire's joy was too deep and well-founded to be in any way damped by poor Gregory's ill-humor, and was too closely present to him for him to be capable of restraining it. Why should he restrain himself before his son? I am sorry for Greg, he said, because he has old-fashioned ideas, but of course it will be for the best. His brother would have squandered every acre of it. To this Ralph made no answer. It might probably have been as his father said. It was perhaps best for all who lived in and by the estate that he should be the heir, and gradually the feeling of exultation in his own position was growing upon him. It was natural that it should do so. He knew himself to be capable of filling with credit and with advantage to all around him the great place which was now assigned to him and it was impossible that he should not be exultant, and he owed it to his father to show him that he appreciated all that had been done for him. "'I think he ought to have the thirty-five thousand pounds at least,' said the squire. "'Certainly,' said Ralph. "'I think so. As for the bulk sum, I have already written to carry about that. No time ought to be lost. There is no knowing what might happen.' he might die. He doesn't look like dying, sir. He might break his neck out hunting. There is no knowing. At any rate, there should be no delay. From what I am told, I don't think that, with the timber and all, they'll make it come to another five thousand pounds. But he shall have that. As he has behaved well, I'll show him that I can behave well, too. I've half a mind to go up to London and stay till it's all through. You'd only worry yourself. I should worry myself, no doubt. And do you know, I love the place so much better than I did, that I can hardly bear to tear myself away from it. The first mark of my handiwork, now that I can work, shall be put upon Darvell's farm. I'll have the old place about his ears before I am a day older. You'll not get it through before winter. Yes, I will. If it costs me an extra fifty pounds, I shan't begrudge it. It shall be a sort of memorial building, a farmhouse of thanksgiving. I'll make it as snug a place as there is about the property. It has made me wretched for these two years. I hope that all that kind of wretchedness will be over now. Thank God, yes. I was looking at Brownrigg's today, and Ingram's. I don't think we'll sell either. I have a plan, and I think we can pull through without it. It is so much easier to sell than to buy. You'd be more comfortable if you sold one of them. Of course I must borrow a few thousands, but why not? 
I doubt whether at this moment there's a property in all Hampshire so free as this. I have always lived on less than the income, and I can continue to do so easier than before. You are provided for now, old fellow. Yes, indeed, and why should you pinch yourself? I shan't be pinched. I haven't got a score of women about me, as you'll have before long. There's nothing in the world like having a wife, I am quite sure of that. But if you want to save money, the way to do it is not to have a nursery. You'll marry, of course, now. I suppose I shall, some day. The sooner the better. Take my word for it. Perhaps you'd alter your opinion if I came upon you before Christmas for your sanction. No, by Jove, that I shouldn't. I should be delighted. You don't mean to say you've got anybody in your eye? There's only one thing I ask, Ralph. Open out and out confidence. You shall have it, sir. There is somebody, then. Well, no, there isn't anybody. It would be impudence in me to say there was. Then I know there is. Upon this encouragement, Ralph told his father that on his two last visits to London he had seen a girl whom he thought that he would like to ask to be his wife. He had been at Fulham on three or four occasions. It was so, he put it, but his visits had in truth been only three, and he thought that this niece of Sir Thomas Underwood possessed every charm that a woman need possess, except money, said Ralph. She has no fortune, if you care about that. I don't care about money, said the squire. It is for the man to have that, at any rate for one so circumstanced as you. The end of all this was that Ralph was authorized to please himself. If he really felt that he liked Miss Bonner well enough, he might ask her to be his wife to-morrow. The difficulty is to get at her, said Ralph. Ask the uncle for his permission. That's the manliest and the fittest way to do it. Tell him everything. Take my word for it, he won't turn his face against you. As for me, nothing on earth would make me so happy as to see your children. If there were a dozen, I would not think them one too many. But mark you this, Ralph, it will be easier for us, for you and me, if I live, and for you without me if I go, to make all things clear and square and free, while the bairns are little, than when they have to go to school and college, or perhaps want to get married. Ain't we counting our chickens before they are hatched? said Ralph, laughing. When they parted for the night, which they did not do till after the squire had slept for an hour on his chair, there was one other speech made a speech which Ralph was likely to remember in the latest day of his life. His father had taken his candlestick in his right hand and had laid his left upon his son's collar. Ralph, said he, for the first time in my life I can look you in the face and not feel a pang of remorse. You will understand it when you have a son of your own. Good night, my boy." Then he hurried off without waiting to hear a word, if there was any word that Ralph could have spoken. On the next morning they were both out early at Darvell's farm, 
surrounded by bricklayers and carpenters, and before the week was over the work was in progress. Poor Darvell, half elated and half troubled, knew but little of the cause of this new vehemence. Something we suppose he did know, for the news was soon spread over the estate that the squire had bought out Mr. Ralph, and that this other Mr. Ralph was now to be Mr. Ralph the heir. That the old butler should not be told, the butler who had lived in the house when the present squire was a boy, was out of the question, and though the communication had been made in confidence, the confidence was not hermetical. The squire, after all, was glad that it should be so. The thing had to be made known, and why not after this fashion? Among the laborers and poor there was no doubt as to the joy felt. That other Mr. Ralph, who had always been up in town, was unknown to them, and this Mr. Ralph had ever been popular with them all. With the tenants the feeling was perhaps more doubtful. "'I wish you joy, Mr. Newton, with all my heart,' said Mr. Walker. Mr. Walker, who was the richest and most intelligent among them. "'The squire has worked for you like a man, and I hope it will come to good.' "'I will do my best,' said Ralph. "'I am sure you will. There will be a feeling, you know. You mustn't be angry at that.' I understand, said Ralph. You won't be vexed with me for just saying so. Ralph promised that he would not be vexed, but he thought very much of what Mr. Walker had said to him. After all, such a property as Newton does not in England belong altogether to the owner of it. Those who live upon it and are closely concerned in it with reference to all that they have in the world have a part property in it. They make it what it is, and will not make it what it should be, unless in their hearts they are proud of it. "'You know he can't be the real squire,' said one old farmer to Mr. Walker. "'They may hugger-mugger it this way and that, but this Mr. Ralph can't be like other young gentlemen.' Nevertheless the squire himself was very happy. These things were not said to him, and he had been successful." He took an interest in all things keener than he had felt for years past. One day he was in the stables with his son and spoke about the hunting for the coming season. He had an Irish horse of which he was proud, an old hunter that had carried him for the last seven years, and of which he had very often declared that under no consideration would he part with it. "'Dear old fellow,' he said, putting his hand on the animal's neck, you shall work for your bread one other winter, and then you shall give over for the rest of your life. I never saw him look better, said Ralph. He's like his master, not quite so young as he was once. He never made a mistake yet that I know of. Ralph, when he saw how full of joy was his father, could not but rejoice also that the thing so ardently desired had been at last accomplished. End of chapter 28. Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.